Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mojito mocktail. How about you, Jenny? I'm drinking a Moscow mule to go along with our Soviet Union case. On today's episode, we'll explore Dyatlov Pass, a gruesome Russian mystery that has captivated the world and has possibly been solved after 62 years. We do have a drinking game to go along with this, so whenever you hear us struggle with a Russian word, say the words Dyatlov, tent, radiation, or avalanche, take a sip. You can take a shot when we mention Yetis, and you can finish your drink when we mention the movie Frozen, which we will mention. So cheers, everyone. In early 1959, Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, formed a group of nine others for a ski trip across the northern Ural Mountains in the Soviet Union. The group was made up of Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, Alexander Kolovatov, Zineda Kolmorgorova, Georgi Krivonoshenko, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Thibault Brignol, Semyon Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. Other than 38-year-old Semyov, everyone was a student in their 20s at the institute. All 10 members were experienced hikers, and the group had designed the ski route themselves, which was approved by a city commission. Due to the winter season, the route was considered a Category 3, which is the most difficult type of trail. The hikers planned to cover a distance of 300 kilometers on skis and climb two peaks, Otorten and Opia Chakor, over the course of 16 to 18 days. Before leaving, Dyatlov said he would send a telegram once the group returned to a village on their way home, and it should be expected no later than February 12th. The group set out for Mount Otorten, on January 27, 1959. The following day, Yuri Yudin left the expedition due to joint pain. Before Yudin left, Dyatlov told him he expected the journey to be longer and to expect the telegram sometime after February 12th. The remaining members went on without him, and on January 31st, they prepared to begin climbing. They left food and supplies needed for the trip back in a wooded area and continued onward to the pass. On February 1st, it's believed they planned to make camp the next day on the other side of the mountain, but faced bad weather, causing them to lose their way and head in the direction of Kolat Siakul, otherwise known as Dead Mountain. They decided to set up camp on the snowy mountain slope with temperatures around negative 30 degrees Celsius. February 12th came and went without much concern. Dyatlov has said the trek would likely take longer and telegram delays were common. But on February 20th, the Dyatlov's group's family members demanded a search and rescue mission. The group's tent was discovered on February 26 on Kolat Siakul, along with the bizarre campsite 300 meters from the top of the mountain. The tent was half torn down and covered in snow. All of the group's belongings, including maps, cameras, diaries, and shoes, were inside the tent. There was also a plate of white pork fat, a dish commonly eaten by hikers, that made the searchers believe the group was possibly getting ready to eat dinner. Arguably, the oddest detail about the tent was that it was cut from the inside out with a knife, leading rescuers to believe the group left the tent in a hurry. Outside of the tent were nine sets of frozen footprints that had been made by people wearing socks, 
one boot or barefooted and led to the nearby woods. At the edge of the woods under a tree were the remnants of a small fire and the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Georgi. Both men were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The tree's branches were broken, suggesting that one of the Dyatlov members had climbed the tree for firewood and possibly fell, injuring themselves. The bodies of Dyatlov, who was dressed but shoeless and hugging a tree branch, and Zineda were found not long after. On March 5th, Rustam's body was found well-dressed but with a fractured skull. All three bodies were found between the campsite and the large tree. Their bodies were frozen in poses that made it appear that they had been trying to return to the tent. There were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed and worn by the others. Due to the winter weather conditions, it took several months to find the remaining members. The bodies of Nikolai, Alexander, Semyon, and Ludmilla were discovered in a ravine further into the wooded area on May 4th. All nine bodies were found within one mile of the destroyed tent. A criminal investigation by the Soviet government took place over three months and began immediately after the first five bodies were found. Autopsies discovered strange findings for several members. Zaneda had a long, bright red bruise on the side of her torso that looked like it had been made with a baton. Nikolai had a fractured skull, and Alexander was found with a wound behind his ear and a twisted neck. Ludmilla and Semyon both were found with broken ribs. The force needed to cause these injuries would be similar to that of a car crash. In addition to the internal injuries, Semyon had an open wound on the side of his head, which exposed bone. Latmila's tongue was missing, and both had missing eyeballs. These soft tissue injuries to their faces and heads were determined to be caused post-mortem. It was determined that six of the students died from hypothermia and frostbite, and three from internal injuries and the official reason given was because of a compelling natural force. However, the source of this natural force could not be established. Case files also showed that the members died six to eight hours after their last meal. There was no indication of other people on Kolat Siakum other than a death loss group. Students left the campsite on their own free will, internal injuries were not caused by human beings, and that some levels of radiation had been found on two of the members' clothes. No information was released on any of the members' internal organs. The investigation stopped in May of 1959 due to no signs of criminal activity, and the files were sealed and archived, which were the standard for the Soviet Union at the time. The bizarre manner of injuries raised questions as to who or what was responsible for the student's death. In 2019, the Russian government reopened the case and attributed an avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane as being responsible for the Dyatlov's past incident. Their reasoning was to establish the truth and stop the spread of rumors. The following year, the inquiry pinned the hiker's death on a combination of an avalanche and poor visibility. As the state-owned RIA news agency reported, in July 2020, the official findings suggested that a torrent of snow slabs or blocky chunks surprised the sleeping victims and pushed them to seek shelter on a nearby ridge. Unable to see more than 50 feet ahead, the hikers froze to death as they attempted to make their way back to their tent. Critics of the government's new theory stated four counter-arguments the lack of physical traces of an avalanche found by rescuers, the more than nine-hour gap between the hikers building their camp, 
a process that required cutting into the mountain to form a barrier against the wind, and their panicked departure, the shallow slope of the campsite, and the traumatic injuries sustained by the group. Johan Gom, head of the Snow and Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and Alexander M. Puzrin, a geotechnical engineer, set out to research the plausibility of an avalanche. They used historical records to recreate the mountain's environment on the night of the Dietlov incident and attempt to address these seeming inconsistencies. Then, they simulated a slab avalanche, drawing on snow friction data and local topography, which revealed that the slope wasn't actually as shallow as it seemed. This proved that a small snowslide could have swept through the area while leaving few traces behind. Gomb and Puzrin theorized that catabatic winds, or fast-flowing funnels of air propelled by the force of gravity, transported snow down the mountain to the campsite, and the accumulating snow became too heavy for the slope to support. Finally, they used animation from the movie Frozen to help determine the hiker's unexplained injuries. The animated simulation, along with data from cadaver studies, showed that heavy blocks of solid snow could have landed on the hikers as they slept, crushing their bones and causing injuries not typically associated with avalanches. If this was the case, the pair posits those who had sustained less serious blows likely dragged their injured companions out of the tent in hopes of saving their lives. Their work proved that the slab avalanche theory was in fact plausible, and keep in mind that was all they set out to do. This mystery of the Dietlov Pass incident is known for its many, many theories that range from government experiments gone wrong to the paranormal. So let's talk about some of the most popular. As we said, the Russian government believes the team was buried in an avalanche and in a state of hypothermia-induced delirium, rushed off in search of help, and subsequently perished. Like we said, this theory was proven to be plausible, but it is still highly debated. One of the most widely believed theories is that the Russian government and military were involved in both the hikers' deaths and a cover-up. Tatiana Permanova, Dietlov's younger sister, said the students' families believed the military was to blame for the deaths of their loved ones. She said, quote, What went on up there is hard to say. The families were told, you will never know the truth, so stop asking questions. So what could we do? Don't forget in those days, if they told you to shut up, you would be silent, end quote. There were claims that the state put pressure on investigators to close the case quickly, and investigators could have been sent to prison at that time if they disagreed. Locals theorized that the dialogues group wandered unknowingly into a weapons test site or were victims of an experiment gone wrong. People in the area claimed to see bright lights and orange orbs in the sky the night that the Dyatlov group set up their tent. The last picture on Simeon's camera shows orbs in it. The lights could potentially be explained by ball lightning striking close to the tent and could also explain some of the serious injuries. Investigators told a newspaper in 1990 that he'd received several reports of balls of fire in the sky, but he had been ordered to classify his findings and forget about them. Allegations that the balls of light were seen weeks after the incident and were attributable to documented missile testing. There were also allegations made by forensic experts saying that the students' severe injuries were caused by, quote, something like an explosion. 
There was never found to be evidence of an explosion in that area, though. One theory is that the group could have left their tent because it was filled with a toxic chemical, they had been frightened by the strange lights and ran, or the tent could have been hit by falling debris. Something a lot of people like to mention is the fact that at least two members had clothing with elevated levels of radiation, but two members also worked in scientific facilities that could have exposed them to radiation. But a young boy who attended the funerals of the members said the skin on several of the victims' bodies was orange or red and they had gray hair. Some say this simply isn't true and some say this is a sign of mummification or that it's a sign of hypothermia. Papers from an investigator's archives said that the makeshift morgue where the first four bodies were examined was surrounded by security officers from the KGB rather than police and no one was allowed in. He also claims that there were large barrels of alcohol that were brought in before the autopsies and forensic experts were told to wipe their bodies with the alcohol, possibly to protect themselves from some type of radiation. Adding to the suspicion about some type of nuclear weapon is that at the time of this student's death, many animals and birds were found dead in the same area, and local people were suddenly banned from using water in wells. Water was actually brought in from elsewhere for them to use, and the Monzi people, who we're going to talk about in a second, were banned from the area, and hunting was not allowed for four years after the incident. Some have theorized that the group were actually on the mission for the KGB, which was the Soviet Union Intelligence Agency. They claimed that the group was sent to spy on a CIA cell and carried radioactive samples with them. The students had sophisticated photo equipment, which isn't a normal thing to bring on a hiking trip when you want to pack lightly. One theorist said, quote, most likely the tourists reached their intended destination and waited for a technology-induced moment, which they were apparently expected to capture with photos. But it went off in an unplanned and extraordinary way, which was possibly the cause of death of the group's members. They, of course, courageously held on to the last moment and didn't run away or panic, end quote. Several rolls of camera film and diary from the hikers were missing, and people claimed Dyatlov himself had identification labeling him KGB. A Russian journalist dispels that the government was involved, saying, quote, there is no way the military would have allowed ordinary citizens, friends of the students, to join the search party on that mountain. It's very strange for me to imagine that someone killed them and then scattered their bodies along the slope because one of the soldiers would let it slip before he died to some of his relatives. Someone would have said something in drunk company, end quote. She also said, quote, we live in a country where nobody can keep a secret, end quote. There's also a theory that aliens were involved, and this is because of the lights that people recall seeing and thinking that they were UFOs. People have claimed that it was UFO technology that was the cause of the radiation, and the photo of orbs on Semyon's camera was also theorized to be that of a UFO. Another hiker around 30 miles from the group gave written testimony saying that he saw, quote, a shining circular body fly over the village from the southwest to the northeast. The shining disc was practically the size of a full moon, a blue-white light surrounded by a blue halo. The halo brightly flashed like the flashes of distant lightning. When the bodies disappeared beyond the horizon, the sky lit up in that place for a few minutes more, 
end quote. One of the initial theories was the belief that the Monzi people were somehow involved in the students' deaths. The Monzi are one of 45 indigenous peoples living in Russia. They were the only other people living in the area of the Dyatlov Pass incident and were quickly blamed and seven Monzi people were interrogated. Relatives of the Monzi people living at the time have said, quote, so many people around here were arrested and a woman from another village used to say that the secret police tortured them. I don't know if that is true, but they were certainly interrogated for weeks, end quote. And the Monzi people actually helped the government find the last four students in that ravine. So I think after that, they kind of realized that the Monzi likely weren't to blame. And there were also no other footprints but the nine hikers and no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. But a book published in 2015 suggests that some Monzi hunters were high on magic mushrooms that were used in shamanic rituals, and they went berserk when they found the students had veered onto sacred Monzi land. One of their relatives said, quote, if any of our people had been involved in that crime, they would have thrown us all into prison because it was a cruel time. In those days, people were executed by a firing squad without investigation or trial, end quote. Another theory that's in the nature realm is the infrasound. New research into rare weather phenomena has suggested that a, quote, perfect storm could have struck the campers in the night, panicking them so much that they would have fled the tent and fallen victim to the brutal cold before they came to their senses. A wind phenomenon, Carman Vortex Street, could have produced a terrifying, powerful sound, which is proven to induce irrational fear in humans. Infrasound is a type of vibration in the air which has a frequency so low it cannot be picked up by the human ear. Studies have shown that it can have effects on the human body, including loss of sleep, nausea, shortness of breath, and a sense of impending doom. One scientist believes that the combination of the effects of infrasound, the deafening noise of tornadoes, and a catastrophic pitch black tent could unseat even the most steady-minded adventurer. And lastly, we have the theory that a yeti or abominable snowman living in the mountains attacked and killed the group. They did leave the tent without clothes in a hurry. People believe that the students were attacked while in their tent sleeping or eating dinner or something like that. There is an image on Nikolai's camera that people claim is a yeti. I personally think it just looks like a man, uh, but you know, take with that what you will. And another explanation for the Yeti is that Ludmilla's eyes and tongue were missing. So they theorized that this monster ripped them out and just ate them. Yuri Yudin, the only surviving member, has said his friends, quote, saw something they shouldn't have seen, end quote, and were forced at gunpoint to fabricate a scene to confuse investigators, then left to die. So Del, what do you think could have happened to the Day at Love Pass group? So I do think there is some credibility to a theory that drugs were involved, which caused the hikers to enter a delirious state. I don't think that it was the Mozzie group coming in and they were doing drugs and then that caused them to attack the hikers. I think that it's completely plausible that the hikers had drugs with them. While the idea of aliens and the Yeti are fun, I don't think there's any real evidence. And I highly doubt if aliens came down, their mission would be to kill these nine hikers. 
the theory about drugs makes sense to me because it accounts for so much of the evidence, like there being no other footprints, the violence that was evident on the bodies, and that they seemingly left on their own free will, even if they were scared or they weren't in the right mindset. It's not like someone else forced them to leave their camp and eventually try to return. The radiation could be explained if they picked something up while hiking. We know how the Soviet Union is. They were always doing a lot of tests back then, so it wouldn't be surprising to me if there was radiation all around. There could also have been some type of cross-contamination while their deaths were being investigated, but that's just speculation on my part. I do also think that there is some credibility to the theories about it being a natural phenomenon that happened. I think irregardless of the specific theory, it was definitely something that caused them to forego their knowledge and their skill that they have. So whether that was drugs, whether that was a high-pitched sound, whether that was some sort of snow slab avalanche, something caused them to totally forget everything that they had learned up to that point. How about you, Jenny? I think that it's more likely that it is something natural and explainable. I do think that aliens and monsters are fun, but... Yeah, to me, there's nothing points to that. That picture that Semyon took that a lot of people want to say is an alien UFO or some kind of attack happening. I honestly think that the camera just got jostled around while everyone was leaving and took a picture. That happens to people with their phones. It happened all the time too when uh, we all had disposable cameras too. I think that's something that can easily be explained. The slab avalanche makes sense to me. I don't know a ton about hiking or avalanche, but they proved that it was plausible at that angle. It's a specific type of avalanche. It's not something massive. It would be able to kind of bury and wreck the tent and scare them enough that they needed to get out. I've heard that even though they were experienced hikers, Dietlov was not experienced with avalanches. So maybe he just didn't know what to do in that situation, or maybe he did know what to do, but was just so panicked and freaked out that they fled. The infrasound really makes sense to me too. And like you were saying, Del, something that really took them out of the right state of mind. And I'm sure too, if they were sleeping and all of a sudden someone starts hearing these noises or all of a sudden someone is woken up by an avalanche, you know, you're kind of delirious from your sleep. It's a high altitude. Maybe that could have affected them somehow. And, you know, your senses aren't really there and you just run. All you can think of in that moment is survival. I think the injuries to Ludmilla and Semyon's faces, their eyes being missing and Ludmilla's tongue being missing as well, I think that's easily explained by animals just being in the area and eating that they were buried for several months. They weren't found right away. So I think that there was definitely time for that to happen. Also, I think a lot of the injuries that they endured could be explained by people falling down the mountain. They had to walk through snow and I'm sure they were already, they were walking on snow that was already hard too. So it's definitely not ideal conditions. That being said, if it isn't something natural, I do think there is good evidence for the government or the military being involved, but 
one of the things that I think is so hard is that everyone has their own opinion and you hear a million different things as you're researching it. So it's hard to tell what is fact and what is fiction and what is reliable. But I think it makes sense to me that they could have been victims of a military test. The military might not have known who was really in the area and maybe frankly they didn't care and they did some type of test and they were thrown from their tent in an explosion or they saw the light and they were thrown and disoriented. I don't know if I really believe the KGB theories that they're secret operatives. I know that people like to say that Semyon and I think one other member had military experience and a lot of people really questioned Semyon because he was the odd one out he wasn't really supposed to go on the trip and all of a sudden he said he wanted to go and he was so much older than everyone else I'm not sure how he really knew them but people really like to question you know what was his deal what was he up to there I've also heard that I believe it was Nikolai that had the twisted neck and the injury behind the ear I read in one article that that's a common I guess like intelligence or military type injury So take with that what you will. I think I have enough information to make a statement on that, but it's an interesting detail. I think overall with this, I really encourage everyone to visit the website dietlovepass.com. There is tons of information out there, tons of theories. You can see every picture that was on the recovered cameras, everyone's diary entries. You can see autopsy records and case files and interviews with people. It really is the hub of everything. They seem like a very credible source to me. I believe the website's run by someone that wrote a book. So why do you think so many people are fascinated by this case some 60 plus years later? I think that people are fascinated by it, one, because it's been unsolved for so long. And that definitely always piques people's curiosity about a case. I think also the fact that besides, you know, like the aliens and the yetis, all of the theories that are being presented has some type of plausibility to it. So it gets you thinking, it gets you wondering. Maybe this one piece of evidence doesn't fit into this theory, but it fits into another. And I think that people as a whole are always fascinated with what's going on in the Soviet Union. I know we're going to talk about it soon about, you know, their shadiness and the fact that they're very secretive about things. And people are always questioning, well, are they telling us the truth about this? And I think that just adds into people's fascination with this case. How about you? I agree. And I think it has a lot of elements of kind of like the perfect scary story almost. It's a group of people out in the open wilderness hiking, which so many people are already scared of the woods and the unknown that that brings. They're out there hiking. They're missing So there's that element of mystery and then the element of mystery of what the hell happened to them. Even if we know how they died, why did they leave that tent? I think that's the biggest question. What made these skilled, experienced, intelligent people pretty much kill themselves? There was no way they would survive out there in that weather. I think you're right about everything being so secret as well. The case was closed so soon. I do think something that people don't always remember is that this happened in 1959. So the technology was really not where it is today. I don't really know what technology today could do, but I'm assuming it could probably do more than what it did in 1959. The gruesome injuries to the bodies too, that's like stuff that nightmares are made of. People missing their eyes, missing their tongues, freezing to death. That's so many people's like 
biggest fears all combined and it happened to a group of people one night in Russia. I think you're spot on by saying that everything kind of contradicts itself. The way one person died makes sense in this regard, but then it doesn't make sense for this other person. There's so much going on in this case, and I think people do enjoy trying to solve it. And we're going to talk about the legend that it's become in a second and how maybe some of the realities of the case are kind of lost to sensationalism. But Del, you did mention the shadiness of the Russian government, uh, the Soviet Union government at the time. Distrust of the Russian government from its own people in the world at large is deep-rooted and very well-known, so it's no wonder why people blame the government and the military for the Dyatlov Pass incident. At the time of the incident, the Cold War was at its height, which caused a lot of fear and paranoia about the spread of communism in the U.S. I'm not sure if people in the Soviet Union were maybe afraid of America and the CIA as well, but lots of general fear and paranoia at the time, and there was this kind of weapons arm race going on, as well as the space race. Who could get to space first? Who could get a man on the moon? And it was the golden age of Soviet science. Like we said, pretty much everyone in the Dyatlov group was a student at a scientific institute. And at the time of the Dyatlov incident, many scientists had actually been thrown in prison for their political beliefs, but time in prison actually helped lead to scientific advances and it gave people time to work on their ideas. And one of the biggest things to come out of the Soviet Union at the time was Sputnik, which was launched in 1957. And Sputnik was the first artificial satellite to orbit the Earth. Then in 1991, the Soviet Union breakup happened and it lifted the curtain of silence over the traumatic past that a lot of the citizens faced. Many people were impoverished by financial collapse and shocked that much of what they had been taught since childhood was a lie and many Russians were cast emotionally adrift. So because of that, faith healing, cults, conspiracies, and pyramid schemes flourished. We also know that the Russian government is not afraid to cover things up and maybe be vague in their explanations. So when we think of that, we can talk about Chernobyl, Sergei Skripal's poisoning that was linked to Russian agents, and a 2019 explosion from a nuclear weapon test that killed five nuclear engineers and I believe two more people as well. There's a general lack of transparency from the government and the military, and that's something that we see in the United States as well. People will often say that UFOs are advanced military technology, but the military doesn't really tell us, you know, what's going on. And with that Area 51, why won't they tell us a little more about what happened there? Are the rumors true? And finally, we have MKUltra, which was a secret and very illegal intelligence experiment in mind control and psychological torture that happened kind of around the same time as the Dietlov Pass incident. I believe it started, I guess, officially sometime in the 60s. Like Del and I said, many people associate Dietlov Pass with elements of the paranormal, particularly a Yeti attack. And the Yeti is a monster that has origins in 
folklore of the Himalayas. It's a large ape-like creature that eats and kills people. They hide up in the mountains. The Yeti, or the Abominable Snowman, I think is commonly referred to. It lives in snowy mountain areas like the Himalayas, like Mount Everest, and possibly the Ural Mountains as well. And the Yeti would be considered a cryptid, and they are animals that are claimed to exist but never proven to exist and lots of cryptids and monsters stem from folklore and local legends so we have a few notable ones the jersey devil del and i are in new jersey so we gotta talk about the jersey devil the jersey devil has origins that start in the 1700s when a woman known as mother Leeds was pregnant with her 13th child i believe some people say her husband was a deadbeat too so she really was not happy about having another kid so she cried out let this child be the devil and then when she went to give birth a few months later the child was born and then all of a sudden it turned into a monster with hooves a goat's head bat wings and a forked tail it flew around the room killed the mom killed the midwives that were with her And then I think it went and killed all the other children in the house and flew out and has been terrorizing New Jersey ever since. There were a lot of sightings of the supposed Jersey Devil around the 1900s. Terrorized New Jersey and the surrounding area. People still to this day say they see it. But depending on who you talk to, it looks different. Some people say it looks like a kangaroo. I feel like I generally think of it as like a goat and a horse with like bat wings. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on it, Del? Yeah, I don't think it exists. But I definitely think that the original characterization of it is probably the most correct. I agree. Yeah, I don't believe in the Jersey Devil, but I think it is a very fun urban legend and monster that we have in the state. And another one of these is the Chupacabra. And the Chupacabra is a legendary creature in the folklore of parts of the Americas with this first reported sighting reported in Puerto Rico in 1995. The name comes from the animal's reported vampirism. The chupacabra is said to attack and drink the blood of livestock, including goats. The chupacabra is described as a bipedal creature that's four to five feet tall with large eyes, spikes down its back, and long claws. And one that you are probably familiar with is the Loch Ness Monster. Nessie, as it's sometimes referred as, is a cryptic in cryptozoology and Scottish folklore that is said to inhabit Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands. It is often described as large, long-necked, and with one or more humps protruding from the water. Accounts of the aquatic beast living in the lake date back 1,500 years, but all efforts to find any credible evidence of the animal have failed. Do you believe in any cryptids, Del? Whether it's any that we listed or any anything else that's out there, possibly? So I definitely think that there is the most evidence for Chupacabra existing because the injuries that the different livestock suffered nothing else makes sense it can't be explained any other way so definitely if i had to list out like plausibility of any of these existing chupacabra would be at the top of my list bigfoot i think is pretty high up on my list as well 
How about you? I don't know too much about the chupacabra. Uh, There's a lot of pictures out there of another chupacabra body discovered in New Mexico. And to me, they all look like those Mexican hairless dogs that win a lot of those ugly dog contests. But I have also heard that those aren't really what the chupacabra is supposed to look like. And based off this description, that's not what they look like. So I would have to do some more research. I do think that there is a chance of Bigfoot being real. I don't know a ton about Bigfoot, but I feel like that kind of makes the most sense. I definitely believe that there's so much that we don't know out there with animals. I wouldn't be surprised if we did find some new species. I do think Bigfoot is really fun to talk about too. And I love that some towns are just like devoted to Bigfoot folklore. I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster, but we know that for a fact that there's so much that we don't know about the ocean and I know that the Loch Ness Monster isn't in an ocean it's in a lake but I think that there's so much that we have to learn about the ocean so if we did find not a sea monster but some large animal that we could liken to a sea monster I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't mention the Mothman but I think the Mothman is like a really fun cryptid too. I don't really know if I believe in it but I think it's a really fun story especially that some people think the Mothman is out to protect people and kind of sense when terrible events are gonna happen but then some people say that the Mothman is the cause of these events so pretty interesting there's also so many eyewitness sightings of the mothman and bigfoot as well i think one of the things with bigfoot like why haven't we had more direct evidence why don't we have a body at least bones or something right and that's always the question because obviously these animals do perish so we should see some type of geological evidence for them and honestly my theory is that their remains are mistaken for the remains of other animals and so it's not attributed to them so if you see something that looks like bigfoot you may attribute it to a primitive human species versus attributing it to bigfoot that's a really good point I think cryptids and monsters are really fun to talk about and there are a lot of states and countries urban legends where they play a role in some type of folklore. And the Dyatlov Pass incident is part of Russian lore and continues to capture the interest of those who hear about it. I think it was made widely public in the 90s. And it's become a worldwide urban legend that everyone has some type of opinion on. Yeah, I definitely am a fan of urban legends. I think that they are really creative stories. And one way for people to wrap their head around events or anything else that seems strange. And it's also a good way to tell the moral of a story. So one of my favorites is Killer in the Backseat. And this involves a woman who is driving and being followed by a strange car. The mysterious pursuer flashes his high beams, tailgates her, and sometimes even rams into her car. When she finally makes it home, she realizes that the driver was trying to warn her that there was a man hiding in her back seat. Each time the man sat up to attack her, the driver behind had to use his high beams to scare the killer, after which he ducked down. So for me, that illustrates being careful. You know, they always tell people before you get into your car, make sure you're looking who's in the back seat, making sure that you are aware of your surroundings. And I think that urban legend gives the perfect illustration of it. Of course, it adds different things for entertainment value. 
but I still think it's a great lesson at the underlying it. And another is the baby train, which is a more fun one. And this one claims that a small town had an unusually high birth rate because a train would pass through the town at 5 a.m. and blow its whistle, waking up all the residents. Since it was too late to go back to bed and too early to get up, couples would just have sex and this resulted in a mini baby boom. And I just love that. I love everything about that. I think that is really funny and it's something that, you know, is lighthearted. I've never heard of the baby train, but it is really funny and it is good to show that urban legends can range from something scary to something kind of silly like that. One of the urban legends that's kind of silly that comes to mind for me is the William Penn curse in Philadelphia. So there's a statue of William Penn who helped found Pennsylvania and he is a major figure in Pennsylvania history. So there is a statue of him on top of City Hall in Philadelphia. He was the highest point in the city for years until the Comcast building came. It was built and it towered over the William Penn statue. And after that, Philly sports teams really started to do bad. So people say that William Penn put a curse on the city because he is no longer the highest point. So I think that's pretty silly. This is not one of my favorites, but another kind of weird one that comes to mind is the finger in the Wendy's chili, which I think did happen, but all those weird, I found a rat in my burger. I found this in my chicken nuggets. Those are always kind of like, oh, you don't want to eat there because you know, this weird thing or Taco Bell gets their meat from this place and Arby's meat is like liquid. All those weird gross food urban legends, which I guess maybe that's a moral too, because we all know we shouldn't be eating fast food, but we do it anyway. And on the creepier side, I have heard so many stories of towns and neighborhoods thriving and then just being abandoned overnight. And people don't have any idea why. And there's stories a cult leader came in and killed everyone in the town after he gained everybody's trust or something was poisoned and they all died or they knew something bad was coming and they all left. I think those are really fun to think about. Dyatlov Pass is Russia's biggest unsolved mystery and the level of questioning and interest goes beyond what America has with Area 51 or the JFK assassination or any other conspiracy. It's very important to the Russian people. There's a quote I have from an article I read that said, every person who starts researching it thinks he's the one who can solve it. But the deeper he goes, the more the swamp sucks him in, which we kind of talked about with there's so many twists and turns and contradictions in this story. So it's kind of like never ending. And it really adds to the fact that we'll probably never know what happened. And even if it is solved, no one will be happy with the answer because they hold their theories so high up. It also begs the question, do people want to accept the truth, which likely isn't as interesting? Do you have any thoughts on that, Del? So honestly, I don't think people want to accept the truth. I think that in a lot of ways, your theories become who you are and how you perceive yourself and your detective skills. So if the truth is not congruent with your theory, I think people will disregard it just like people do now where if something doesn't jive with the way they see reality, they're very quick to say, oh no, that's fake. 
you know, that's fake news. I don't believe you. So I definitely think that people would do that in this case if when the truth comes out, if it doesn't align with their own theory. I agree, especially because the government is so potentially involved in this case. And like we said, a lot of people aren't trusting of the government. I know for me, when it comes to these kinds of theories, I can easily accept the truth. I hope that there are more people out there who can, even if I get really invested in something, if I found out tomorrow that I was totally wrong, I would think about it for a while and think, okay, like, well, maybe this piece fits here. And okay, that does explain that. There's so many things we're never going to know. I think it can be harmful to not accept the truth. Maybe not so much in this situation, but there is like an element of fun to all of it too. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that the only thing with that is I feel like if you're a person that can't accept the truth when it doesn't matter, I feel like that's an indication that you um, are going to have a hard time except the truth when it does matter. And that does worry me if someone is getting way too invested in something that doesn't matter. Like, okay, <laughs> what is this an indication of? Are you having trouble in other areas accepting what the reality of the situation is? Oh, that's such a good point. I didn't even think about that. And with that, I think a lot of times people overlook things that can get easily explained and they overemphasize things to fit a certain narrative and sensationalize the story. So Mount O'Torton, for example, a lot of people translated the meaning of the mountain's name to don't go here because it was dangerous. But in reality, I believe the Monzi translation is something like Mountain of the Swift Winds, which if we're talking about something natural that happened to the hikers, Swift Winds is a possibility. And even um, Colette Siakal is called Dead Mountain. Well, it's not called Dead Mountain because people die there. It's called Dead Mountain because things don't grow there. And another thing is Ludmilla's tongue and eyes. People always want to mention that, that her tongue was ripped out and her eyes weren't there. When, like we said, it's most likely explained because an animal ate it. I think another element too is the paradoxical undressing or why did everyone come out in the snow when they didn't have any clothes on? Either they were paradoxically undressing, which happens in the late stages of hypothermia. Your body feels very hot when in reality you're still freezing cold and you're near death. But I think with the Dietlov Pass incident, it's more likely that people died and the other hikers just took their clothes because they were smart and they knew that's what they had to do to survive. Everyone kind of wants to entertain too. So this is kind of like a, a creepy ghost story. Like we said, it's this well-known urban legend. So making sure you mention, okay, her tongue was gone. His eyes were gone. That guy's neck was twisted. Some of them didn't have clothes on and their bodies were frozen. Like that's the kind of stuff you want to mention if you're going to scare people, if you want to sell a newspaper or maybe even a book too. There's one quote I found that I thought was interesting and it is, quote, reluctance to accept these young nine people met their ends in a banal way. People cling on to the idea that there was something unearthly and otherworldly about it, end quote. So something for everyone to think about. And finally, I wanted to discuss one of my favorite unsolved mysteries that is commonly known as the American Dyatlov Pass, and that is the Yuba County Five. Del, have you heard of this case at all? I have not, but it definitely seems interesting. So this is 
one of my top five I want to know the answer. When I cross over, if someone is on the other side saying, Jenny, you can find out the answer to a mystery that you've always wondered, just tell me what I think I might pick the Yuba County Five. And the Yuba County Five is the story of five missing young men with mild intellectual disabilities and psychiatric conditions that disappeared from Yuba City, California in February 1978 after attending a basketball game. The group was made up of Bill Sterling, Jack Hewitt, Ted Weir, Gary Mathias, and Jack Madruga. Several days after the friends went missing, the car the group used to get to the game was found on a deserted mountain road 70 miles from where they were last seen. The gas tank was a quarter full and the car had no damage to it. There was a snowstorm in the area the night the men disappeared as well, so that's something to keep in mind. In June of that same year, so several months later, a group of motorcyclists noticed a strong smell coming from a forest service trailer. Inside the trailer was the frozen body of Ted Weir. Eight sheets had been pulled over his body and tucked around his head. His leather shoes were missing. I believe his feet were frostbitten as well. He had lost 80 to 100 pounds and had a long beard, which indicated he lived in starving agony inside the trailer for 8 to 13 weeks. And the trailer was 20 miles from the abandoned car. So to get there, the men had to either walk those 20 miles in a snowstorm or someone took them there. And in the trailer, they found remnants of ration cans that were from an outdoor storage area that was opened. But no one had opened a locker inside the trailer, which had enough dehydrated meals to keep all five men alive for a year. And there was a propane tank outside that was untouched. The remains of Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt were found not far from the trailer, and one of the bodies had been partially eaten by animals. Gary Mathias was nowhere to be found and is still missing today. His tennis shoes were inside the Forest Service trailer, which suggested to investigators that he might have taken them off to put on Weir's leather shoes due to his feet swelling from frostbite. And a lot of people think either Gary Mathias was involved with the death of his friends, or he is missing because he died on the way to get help and his body has yet to be discovered somewhere in the wilderness. And one of the reasons people think that Matthias was involved in killing the men was because he suffered from schizophrenia and was without his medication. At the time, he also did not have his ID. That doesn't have anything to do with him uh, possibly being violent, but it's a, a detail. Um, and Matthias had also been charged with assault twice in the past and was known to be able to walk long distances. So lots and lots of questions with that. It's another gruesome story that takes place in the wilderness with a really sad ending. And with this, a lot of people want to know why did they abandon a perfectly operable car to go out into the forest at midnight? Why did they walk through 20 miles of snowdrifts and darkness to break into a locked, unheated trailer? How did they know it was there? What were they going to? And why did they drive so far out of the way in the first place? There's a lot of details that I didn't include just because this episode isn't about the Yuba County Five, but it's something I wanted to mention just in connection with that. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think happened to the Diet Law Pass team. 
make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.